0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts Hey everybody It's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg I just wanted to say I appreciate All of your support Of the Flashpoint show And podcast Would you do me a favor Would you subscribe To the podcast And be sure to rate And review We need your reviews To get us to the top Have a happy 2021 Now back to the show Coming up shooting spree in Georgia claims the lives of eight people, including six Asian American women.
1: We need to mourn this. We need to seek some kind of justice.
0: Police won't say it's a hate crime, but the Asian American community sees it differently.
2: I'm horrified this person targeted a specific
0: group. Reaction, mobilization, and the effort to fight anti-Asian sentiment in America. Then these shootings sit at the intersection of religion, sex and race.
3: Women who seem to be exotic, they seem to be more sexual than everybody else.
0: A deep dive into evangelical beliefs and the violence that can grow out of repression. It's a riveting discussion you don't want to miss. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donorsone.org. and I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the rise in attacks against Asian Americans. Anti-Asian hate crimes have increased more than 150% in the last year, and in recent days, a 21-year-old white man went on a shooting spree at three Asian spas in Georgia, killing eight people, including six Asian American women. The incident has sparked outrage and fear within the Asian American community. We have three guests here to discuss. First up is John Chen, president of the Philadelphia Chinatown Development Corporation. John, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me here today. Police have been very reluctant to call the Atlanta area shooting spree a hate crime. But the Asian American community says, you see this, you automatically feel that this is a hate crime. Explain why.
2: Let's just look at the facts. One individual deliberately drove to three separate businesses and shot and killed people in those businesses. These were businesses that were run by Asians And the victims were Asian American plus two others. The facts show that there was deliberate solicitation of these businesses that were owned by Asians and Asian workers and other individuals inside. This person targeted a specific group. How do you feel first,
0: knowing that this happened? And then I know it's hard to speak for a broader community, but what has been the reaction collectively? I'm
2: horrified. I'm really disgusted. I'm angry by the... um, response by the law enforcement down there. And if you look at the the number of people that were shot and killed in this one incident, this is a mass murder and it should be treated at all levels of government with the greatest care and investigation. I mean, Asian Americans across this country, just at the start of 2021, we were being shocked weekly by news of random acts of violence against vulnerable senior citizens and women in this country. And here you have a person that has killed six Asian American women. The Asian American community across this country is in disbelief. I just had a meeting with one of the founders, Cynthia Choi of Stop AAPI Hate. They've recorded 3,800 incidents just in this past year with COVID-19. I wanna talk about
0: that report a little bit because there were quite a few in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey region that were included in that report. And there's a wide range of what that means.
2: There is a wide range of attacks against Asian Americans this past year. And I think there's a, a problem here. There's a legal definition of a hate crime, but there's also this mental issue of victims. A victim can be uh, experienced some kind of harassment or, or bias incident. It could be, uh, we've heard reports of people being splashed with bottles of water. Mrs. Chen, who lives in Chinatown last summer, was punched in the face. She was eight months pregnant at that time. But it was determined by the district attorney's offices that that did not warrant a um, level of hate or bias, even though she was called effing uh, Chinese B. This legal definition gets in the way of trying to help victims heal from these traumatic experiences. And we have to look at both. We have to treat both and understand that victims want help both from a physical standpoint to recover but also from a mental standpoint. But they also want to be recognized as having equal protection under the law. And we're looking at these cases and and that just doesn't feel like it's happening. Does it make you feel
0: unseen in some ways when you can't get recognition that it's actually happening and that enhanced protection protects your community? Just imagine
2: that you're a victim of a crime, you're already reluctant to call law enforcement or 911 because culturally immigrants have a fear or distrust of the police. But when you do, you find out that the police can't even help you. It's humiliating to be a victim and you're not able to to have rights. And if you're parents of young children you're trying to raise in this country, and these children are looking to their parents as heroes and, and, and role models, how can a parent look to his or her child and say, Sorry, son or, or daughter, uh, the law doesn't protect us. There's a real sense, sense of um, injustice for many of these victims. Is the community
0: coming together? What is the mobilization effort to sort of fight back against
2: this? You know, it was wonderful that groups in Philadelphia organized this vigil to mourn for the loss of life in Atlanta. I was really happy to see that there was a diversity of people that came together from all races and ethnicities. In order to overcome these attacks against Asian Americans, people of color, and any other gender issue, or ethnicity or race, we have to work together as a group. That's just the start. We have to figure out how to incorporate education, educating ourselves about the values that each racial or ethnic group brings to this country.
0: Is there a a rallying cry here to say, you know what, we need to get the laws
2: changed? The the laws, many will argue, don't go far enough. Um, That has to change. Not only that, but how about the law enforcement that has to interpret the law or apply the law? We need to train our police officers. We need to train our law enforcement to understand very clearly what the law allows them to do as an authority and not to, and how can they use the law to protect victims and ensure that um, they have some kind of justice. How do we take the temperature down as we wrap up, and and what are the next steps? Regardless of race, the, the, the fact is that economically speaking and physically speaking, uh, the citizens of our country are in, are in bad shape. Many of us are out of work. Uh, if we are working, we're working long hours and probably earning less money. Our businesses are maybe at 30 40% of capacity before 2019. I'm not talking about large corporations or large companies. I'm talking about small business owners that are the backbone of jobs in the city of Philadelphia. Um, we need to ensure that we've got to focus on the economics. We need to find out what federal dollars are coming down the pike and ensure that these dollars are getting into our small businesses. And once we support our small businesses, get jobs going again, things will be a little bit better. That gives us the luxury to then talk about race, to talk about racism. And as we wrap up, I
0: want to give a plug because I know that locally your organization is doing some work to help people deal with some of the mental health effects of this, of all these, this rise in attacks that's can be pretty traumatizing.
2: Early on last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, we started a program called Chinese Immigrant Families Wellness Initiative. In the Chinese culture, mental wellness is shunned. We don't talk about it, but imagine the amount of stress that all of us are feeling during this pandemic. This program actually brought young people and the parents together to talk about mental wellness and to break the barriers of mental wellness. This program, fortunately for us, is ongoing. Uh, We can use more funding to keep it going uh, towards the end of the year. We all know that um, we need to be mentally healthy in order to get out of this pandemic. And please give your website www.chinatown-pcdc.org. John Chen, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you for giving me this time. Our
0: next guest is Anne Ishii, the executive director of the Asian Arts Initiative and part of the Mayor's Commission on Asian Pacific American Affairs. Welcome to Flashpoint, Anne. Thanks, Cherry, for having me. You recently wrote an op-ed about the rise... Not just in attacks against Asian Americans, but also the constant microaggressions. Could you talk about racism against the Asian American community and why so many people, why do you think they don't see it?
1: You know, I appreciate you phrasing it that way. Because why aren't you seeing it? We're seeing it. One of the answers is actually to do with how we process micro insults, right? Or, or what feels like casual racism or implicit bias. The net effect of that just building up and being repressed for this long uh, has to come out at some point. So my argument would be that all of this denigration, all of this taking away of our dignity and disrespect adds up and we bottle it up and our community, the Asian American community has historically had a difficult time sort of expressing as in letting out what's happening. So some of this I do think is just about understanding that what has just happened to us is unacceptable and speaking up, living a little more unapologetically loudly and creating a new norm out of what we think are our own standards. So normalizing some of our traditions and cultures, I think, is an important part of that. We just haven't had a chance to possibly. Or it's also this narrative of the last four years under the Trump administration where it's sometimes just blatant, like anybody who doesn't fit into this like mythological idea of what it is to be American, if you don't fit in it, we're going to just call you out. The other part of this I just wanna point out is Asians in America have had a really complicated history of how we got here. And so a lot of us actually don't think we deserve more. We think we can take this and that it's just sort of par for the course that like it makes us stronger, that we can turn the cheek And None of that, I'm not judging any of that, but that's just something that's been sort of enforced. And I think some of that might be because we were coming from places where the aggression was much darker, much more violent, A lot of us were fleeing state genocide, but there's a sense of like, I don't need to bring this up because my parents literally just fled a genocide. I'm not going to tell them somebody called me a racial slur. That feels small. It adds up, adds up. And And then it has nowhere to go. The news in Atlanta has actually triggered a lot of horrible memories of kids being bullied as children, including myself. And so it's not that we don't know how to process the big things, that the big things are really obvious. We need to mourn this, we need to seek some kind of justice. But it's the small things that make that erode at our ability to be, you know, whole people. It it causes anxiety and depression. And ultimately, I mean, I come from an arts background, I'm an arts leader, but my biggest concern is to make sure that especially young Asian Americans and people who are just finding themselves actually feel like their imagination can still exist and be nourished you know if we can't do those things if we can't create art uh, find pleasure express ourselves uh, because we're constantly holding back the frustration around these attacks you know I, I think it's all part of the same conversation like we need to be able to express that these things are happening that the natural culture that we live in, the ecosystem it deserves to be here, deserves to be a part of American story.
0: Yeah. And so you, you were saying that a lot of people in the Asian uh, community have been suffering in silence for a long time.
1: That's right. Yeah. I'd say again, just, it is really difficult to negotiate between a really major trauma and a microaggression, but we're holding the same breath for both of those, right? And there's such a complex narrative in between all of that. Um, I think the other thing is, I'm just gonna go there, but <laughs> who do we talk to about this? You know, the, the police don't help. Uh, and frankly, I personally don't think they're the ones we need to be calling anyway. Um, sometimes we have language issues, barriers to speaking with like who we're supposed to talk to we don't even know how to talk about it to ourselves sometimes. So we have suffered in science. Some of it is, I don't know who to talk to. And some of it is, I don't think I deserve to be saying this.
0: Most of the time, women
1: are the targets.
0: Um, can you talk about this from an aspect of being woman as well? For sure. How do we change this part of the culture? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, that's such a good question, Cherry, because I think, If you look around and this doesn't have to be limited to the Asian community, I think we can all picture the person in the service center sector, the the people in the service industry that are closest to you who become more intimate, most intimate with you, your care providers, your babysitters, your teachers, your nurses, masseuses, nail salon experts, hairstylists, women, right? We're all women. So I think one thing is, and yes, statistically Asian women are 3 times likely to be the victims of these assaults and aggressions. It's because we're so proximate to everybody. We're the ones out there. Like you're the we're the ones people see. That level of intimacy we expect from women in the service sector that we sometimes take for granted just means that that's how much more exposed we are. So we're likely going to be the ones you throw hands at. As we wrap up, I mean,
0: there's a silver lining. Are we, we're talking about it. Yeah. Is this an opportunity for the Asian American community?
1: Today, I'm feeling very sad, but it's not lost on me that I am now getting really beautiful outreach and calls from Black colleagues and peers who are like, I haven't been on this side of the text message before of checking in on my sisters, right? And so they're like, and I'm saying, you know what? I was right there with you last May and June when it was like checking in and it felt, it felt hard. I I don't know how to hold that space. And they said, now that I'm seeing it from this side, I can, it's just just this different kind of a mutual understanding of what it means to sit in this really, really hard feeling. And so, you know, I'll call that a silver lining because it's just the realization that we have the tools where we have the tools. We've known what, the solutions are we're working we're doing it like one of the questions i get asked of our organization is what are you doing about this and i'm like the our existence is what we're doing about it this is this is it us us being an arts organization so kids can come here and learn to paint so future theater artists can rehearse their you know one person play like that that is part of the answer is just existing and doing it and being here
0: this is yeah. top tough tough hopefully just having discussions about it will be the spark that leads to some change and with that i want to say thank you so much to Anne ishi for coming on flashpoint thank you so much we will continue our discussion when we return hey flashpoint family if you like what you hear Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our Past episodes or our Flashpoint Extras. One example is our Exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark Moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Newsmaker of the week Andrew Wyatt He's spokesman for actor And comedian Bill Cosby He explains why they're petitioning the governor To hopefully get the cause Out of jail early All of this and more Please subscribe to the podcast And rate and review Now back to the show Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We are talking about the rise in hateful attacks against Asian Americans. Georgia police have been reluctant to call the murder of eight people, including six Asian American women, a hate crime, citing the suspect's alleged sex addiction. Dr. Anthea Butler is an associate professor of religious studies and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the author of a new book titled. White evangelical racism. Welcome to Flashpoint, Dr. Butler. Thank you so much. So, the suspect in the Atlanta case said he had a sexual addiction and he carried out the shootings at massage parlors to eliminate, quote, temptation. Yet, six of his eight victims were Asian women. And right now, police are reluctant to label this a hate crime.
3: Just react to that. Uh, I think it's a hate crime, I think it's a terrorist act. I think that it's very clear that this young man has had problems before. I mean, one of the things that has just come out that his parents had a tracker on his car and that they uh, were the ones that turned him in. So they already know that he's a powder keg. He has been involved in a, in a Southern Baptist church that has been promoting guns and all sorts of other kinds of things. And he probably did have a sexual addiction, but that sexual addiction is mixed into a racist kind of ideology that has objectified Asian women in a certain kind of way for his sexual pleasures and desires. And he felt as though if he eliminated them, that that would mean that his problem would be eliminated. Now that's an extreme way to think about it, but I think if you understand the the ways in which some evangelicals think about sin, that's not that far off. And that is unfortunate. And It is unfortunate that this has happened in the midst of a climate of racial hatred and violence against Asian American Pacific Islanders. But I think what we have to understand about this is that you cannot allow the perpetrator to define the terms of whether something is racial or not. And I think that's really important because it's pretty clear that this man is, you know, I'm not even going to say he's crazy. I think he was totally in his right mind for what he thought he was doing right. I think that by ceding that land to him, what the sheriff did, that was a way to get him out of being charged with the hate
0: crimes talk about this intersection of race religion and sex because a lot of people don't really understand how sex and religion has led to a lot of of issues and then when you throw race on top of it it's a powder keg.
3: The sex, race, and religion thing is really powerful because in a lot of Protestant and also with Catholics, you know, in the Christian world, there are sexual prohibitions. You are not supposed to have, in some ways, sex before marriage. You are not supposed to have what they would consider to be deviant sex. There's even people who say you're not even supposed to do anything outside of the missionary position, and it's supposed to be only for procreation, not for pleasure, okay? So you you have to understand that there's a lot of baggage that people get in these kinds of groups. They get this kind of sexual baggage. And so for this particular young man, one of the tropes in evangelicalism that has always been used to talk about sex as being bad and temptation for men is pornography. And so if he was into pornography, then this is something that you could hear in lots of evangelical churches, You know, the evils of pornography, how this makes everything bad. And I'm not here to argue that. I'm just here to just sort of tell you what they're doing the question what happens with that is that people get desensitized to it and they try to get it out of their lives in a certain way and it ends up sometimes making them do even stranger things or do violent things towards women now all of this is predicated on you know sort of patriarchy and how men think about themselves. And especially, and I'm going to say this, and this will probably upset some people, how white men think about other women, especially women of color. Women of color have always been sexualized. So whether we're talking about Asian women, Latino women, African-American women, African women, women who seem to be exotic, they seem to be more sexual than everybody else because they are not you know, the norm to a, to a white Christian man. And so this has a whole history to it in terms of thinking about the history of missionaries, the histories of the ways in which purity culture works and these kinds of you know, high boundary, conservative kinds of religions like evangelicalism And so for this young man, you know, I think that he had a lot of that stuff swirling in his head. He had a lot of desires that he acted out on or snuck to act out on and then decided that he needed to try to fix that so that he wouldn't be sinful anymore or that he would get rid of what he felt the cause was it of of that was. And that meant I'm going to go kill some women. Now, for some people out here, you'd be thinking, is he an incel? I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's that kind of person. But what I am sure about is that his faith, his evangelical conservative Christian faith put him in this position to uh, allow himself to go out and get in the car and ride around to spas. What you know, as well as I do, lots of us do who've been in Atlanta, there's a strip club on every corner. If you just wanted to get rid of somebody who was sexing, all you gotta do is roll up to a strip club. They're They're everywhere in Atlanta. But the fact that he went specifically to these spas tells me that he had a motive and that his motive was, I am going to get these particular Asian women because he could have gone anywhere and he did not and so that's where this is racist so to get back to the original thing about how does this come about and how is this you know religious and how are people thinking about this and how are the sheriff who said he just had a bad day which i thought was the biggest you know it was just horrible but you know they too think this way because you're in the bible belt and there's a lot of people in this country who felt like, well, he just went to spas. These women are hookers. We don't know any of that, and then therefore we should just, you know, this is too bad. And and sex work for a lot of people means that you're disposable, and that should not be the case at all, right? And that this is somehow dirty. And when you mix this in with all this religious stuff, then the ways in which this the sheriff acted yesterday by saying he had a bad day and everything else, he privileged the murderer over the people who were murdered. And that's, that is is dehumanizing. And this is what these Christians don't realize is that they are some of the people who dehumanize other human beings the most because of their beliefs. So race is tied
0: into his sexual addiction. And so yes. that in and of itself, mm. even though even if he didn't say, or maybe he did say something explicitly, mm. but that is
3: what makes it racist. That is exactly what makes it racist. And the fact that, you know, he had, I mean, you can call it whatever it is, it's a particular, um, you know, desire or fetish or however you want to think about it. These kinds of things don't come out in a vacuum. It could have happened because he was watching pornography. It could have happened that he just hadn't attracted to these kind of women. But the fact that he felt motivated to go and kill them means that this is this is risen above just a normal crime. There is malice aforethought. You know what this is. He didn't go after black women. He didn't go after white women. He didn't go after Latino women. He went after Asian women. How can you not say that this isn't it doesn't have a racial component to it?
0: You made some interesting observations on Twitter. Very curious. You talked about how all of these issues are inextricably tied. Mm-hmm. And this expands beyond just the evangelical church, religion itself Sometimes um, suppresses some of these things, and then people blow up like this guy blew up.
3: Yeah, I think what needs to happen is some better training about sexuality, first of all. At these times when people are forming their sexuality at 12 or 13, they're saying, don't touch yourself, don't do this, don't do that, right, because these are prohibitions, but all this stuff gets internalized, and you don't have a place to go, you don't have a place to talk about it, or they tell you true love waits till you get married, and and we saw that guy blow up a few years ago with with all of that, right, Uh, or the Catholic Church. Uh, We're not going to bless same-sex unions because, you know, that's sin, and I'm like, Y'all gonna talk about saying well we've had all these pedophiles? Hello, you've been blessing stuff for a long time, and you've had pedophiles blessing people. So what does this mean? So th- this hypocrisy, this this double speak, this all of this thing to to talk about what they think this should mean theologically, and not deal with the reality of people's lives. This is an issue. And so what I see happening is, you know, especially with this case, is this moment of of reckoning to understand that these teachings about sexuality are not valid for this particular time period that we live in. And it's not valid for a time period when people never get married or get married at, at you know, 30, 40, 50, instead get getting married at 12 and 13, like they did back in the middle ages, or even, and not even that long ago, really 19th century. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that this was what was happening then. And you had a, you had a better, you, you had a, a opportunity to act out your sexuality at a much earlier age by getting married. Now you don't do that anymore. And I'm not saying that that should happen. I'm just saying that there is not a realistic conversation happening in Catholic or evangelical churches, for that matter, about sexuality, because what it's doing is making a bunch of repressed people go absolutely crazy. And in a year when we all been locked down for a pandemic and you can't get out and you can't see who you want to see and you can't do what you want to do, this is I don't have, have to tell you what that means.
0: Why do you think the knee-jerk reaction would be to take race out of the equation?
3: They don't want to admit what this is because they don't want to admit that you could actually hate somebody and want to sleep with them at the same time. What's the story of black black women and white men in this country? It's of slavery. What what is that story? What what is this story? What is the story that just happened on The Bachelor? I mean, I, I won't bring that up, but you know, let's, yeah. let's bring it all in. Let's 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 bring it all together. I mean, here you got somebody who cosplayed, you know, plantation stuff, but called herself in love with a black man and lost a brother, the first brother on The Bachelor. Because of racism. This has been a week. That is an understatement. And
0: I I just want to sort of talk about your book, White Evangelical Racism The Politics of Morality in America. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Your book dropped this month, so it's like perfect timing. Why did you write it?
3: Yeah, it is perfect timing. I mean, because I, I think one of the things that we have not taken into account is how, you know, especially in the last four years, although the book is not about the last four years, the book is actually about the last 200 plus years is about how evangelicals have always been racist. And they have pretended to have morality because they, you know, they they talked about sexuality and purity, they talked about not getting abortions, they talked about the family as being very important. But these things belied the other kinds of racist things that they did. And they wrote these histories about themselves that were just, you know, partially true, but they're not all the way true. So we got to go back and look at how evangelicals supported slavery. You got the Southern Baptists who had a big week this week, too, because they lost their biggest white woman and their biggest representative of their denomination, you know, uh, Beth, to the fact that she's like, I called out Trumpism and you all attacked me. So Beth Moore left them. She's a huge Bible teacher with a huge following. She left them. And she left them in part because of the racism of the denomination. So I think that this book is about showing people from slavery to the you know to right to the beginning of the Trump administration how evangelicals have used morality as a shield to hide behind the inherent racism that they have theologically and morally that drives the kinds of political actions that they approve of. So when we think about something like busing and they say that they don't really want busing but you know we need to get rid of these schools and we need to have school choice that means I want to take my white kid out of these schools that are integrated and put them in a school with other white kids It means that, you know, instead of like, you know, having voting rights for everybody, we're going to say, we don't want really everybody to vote. That was Paul in, in the late 1970s. And you hear people saying this right now. You can see how these voting rights are being stripped away, but a lot of those voting rights are being stripped away by people who go to church every Sunday. They don't want Black, understand, they are trying to strip away voting rights from Black people who have souls to the polls, who are going to church and supposedly believe in Jesus just like they do, but they don't want those people to vote because they're not voting the way they want them to vote. So this book shows the kinds of ways that evangelicals have worked this. And even when they say they're sorry for being racist, what that is, is actually a ploy to be able to say, oh, but we don't want to be racist. We don't do these kinds of things. And look, we have a statement. But as a matter of fact, they continue to support racist policies and promulgate them just like everybody else.
0: I haven't read your book yet, but it's on my list because- this country was founded on racism and humanity yeah. and religion was extricably tied to it. It seems like it hasn't changed.
3: No, it has not. This is what I'm getting at in the book. It has not changed. And it's a, it's, it's a marriage that works for, for white people and it works very poorly for everybody else. And this is how they maintain power. And this is why, you know, 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in the 2020 election cycle. Once you read the book, you will understand why this is and why, you know, we, why January 6th happened. You know, because lots of nice Christian people were there while they weren't peeing in the hallways and spreading other stuff on the walls. They were praying to Jesus in the Senate Chamber. How how do you get that? How do you get a guillotine at the at the Capitol next to a cross and next to all this Christian imagery and at the same time bash over the policemen's heads? It doesn't make
0: sense because yeah, well, it, it makes sense. sense to
3: them because they yeah. think they're fighting for the country. If
0: you want to make this make sense, please check it out white evangelical racism the politics of morality in america can they get it anywhere
3: yes you can get it anywhere amazon you can order it from unc press get it from your favorite bookstore it's out there
0: well thank you so much this conversation has been enlightening i can't wait to to read your book congratulations yeah thank you cherry next up they are taking on root causes to create a better quality of life for communities of color.
4: You have to go, have the very people that are involved in the process be a part of the solution.
0: A group of men in Germantown who care. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now we here at QW we are all about community, and a North Philadelphia nonprofit is celebrating its tenth year of commitment to taking on root causes of issues within communities of color. Here to talk about men who care of Germantown is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Executive Director, Clayton Justice. Welcome to Flashpoint, Clayton.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So for folks who've never heard of Men Who Care of Germantown, explain what your mission is.
4: Our mission is to enhance the quality of life of the residents of Germantown in the northwest section of Philadelphia. And uh, we specialize in youth advocacy and empowerment. We also have several programs that service community outreach initiatives. We have a food service initiative. So we're part of uh, Philabundance. We have an emergency food pantry. We have a senior food share program. And since COVID, we've had a weekly food distribution that feeds about 200 to 300 uh, residents in Germantown.
0: Why was the organization founded, and what were you trying to provide a solution to?
4: Well, it actually kind of evolved. Um, one of our founding members, George Waters, was a returning citizen, and while he was away, he decided that he wanted to get back to the Germantown community, and that's where we all grew up, as a grassroots organization. And so when George came back home, he essentially called up some of the old gangs and said, listen, I have this, this idea I want to give back to the community. And so at that time, I wasn't a part of the organization. That was in 2011. And it essentially began with just street cleaning, cleaning up abandoned houses, you know, looking out for the elderly in the community. And then it kind of evolved from there. I joined the organization in 2014. I had a kind of a bigger vision for our organization. I said that we should focus on education, and uh, cross-generational initiatives to essentially just try to uplift the community of Germantown.
0: That's beautiful. And so you think about men who care. Why is it so important for men to show that they care?
4: For Black men, I think that, you know, oftentimes um, we're slighted in terms of our contributions, not only to our families, but our commitment to the community. And so we thought that it would be appropriate to have that name just reaching back and lifting people up and showing that you know there's another side of black men that care about community, that care about families and cares about education.
0: And you think about the city has been facing a violence epidemic. Could you talk about the importance of that and sort of dealing with some of the root causes uh, that your organization does?
4: For us, it's really trying to let be boots on the ground, if you will. And uh, we were awarded a grant from the Office of Violence Prevention just to come up with intervention measures to fight gun violence. And one of the things that we discovered was that oftentimes organizations, organizations, individuals, you know, uh, politicians believe that we have these bright ideas about what to do. You have to go have the the very people that are involved in the process be a part of the solution. And so our approach is a peer-to-peer mentorship approach where we actually have a program that we're calling the, the Partnership of Brotherhood. And we're asking Young men who are not involved in gun violence who may know someone who might be going down that path or actually are involved in those acts is to begin to have conversations with them. Like we have this mentorship program called Real Talk, and we create like a, a safe zone for youth to come, especially young boys, to talk freely and openly about the issues that they're having in the community, especially as it relates to conflict. And from those conversations, we try to provide advocacy opportunities. So the Brothers Partnership is an idea of having peers mentor each other to make better choices.
0: Yeah. Tell me a story of something you're very proud of as you've been in part of this organization for several years now.
4: Probably about four years ago, we decided that we were going to surprise these families for Christmas. And uh, we asked some teachers, you know, some kids who were definitely in need, some families in need. And so we got all of their sizes. So we chose about 15 families and they had no idea that this was coming. So I personally went out and did shopping for these kids. Get to, Got to find out what they really liked and we bought them clothes, we bought them games. And so the kids all lined up in a hallway and they had blindfolds on. So they came into this classroom and these desks had their names on it. And so they were like wide eye, like, oh my God, what is this? And so at first they were sitting down in front of the clothing, in front of the toys, and they were like perplexed. They were like, "The stuff is for you. They were like, really? And so after the kids opened up their toys and tried doing their clothes, we also gave the families like $200 gift cards. And the mothers just started bawling, And it was just like, I got goosebumps. I had to fight back my tears. And I left that saying to myself, I really know why I do this, because it's really impacting and touching people's lives. That really made me understand that, you know, for me, this is part of my legacy. I love doing this work, this community outreach and uh, helping people live productive lives is really what Men Who Care is all about.
0: Wonderful. So what's the vision for Men Who Care of Germantown?
4: Our vision is to have lasting impact. Our vision is to create citizens out of the people that we come in contact with, especially the youth, you know, so that they will be stewards of our communities. They'll be the pillars of our communities. They'll be the people that will replace me um, and begin to give back and have that be a reciprocation of goodwill so it's really just kind of like paving a road of legacy that continues on because you know we have to get back to becoming a village again and taking care of one another creating that village mentality where we start reaching back reaching up pulling people up and lifting them up high and in doing so when those individuals go off and become successful in life they won't forget where they came from
0: that's beautiful. So how can people support you and your organization?
4: We do have an ongoing GoFundMe page, so they can make donations there. If they want to volunteer, they can email me. You can add my last name, Justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E, C-S and cat, M S as in Mary at AOL.com.
0: Wonderful. So I want to say thank you so much to Clayton Justice, Executive Director of Men Who Care of Germantown. Thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint that's it for flashpoint follow us on twitter our handle is flashpoint show and since we always wrap it up with a quote here's one from famed author and social critic james baldwin not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced this show was produced by Ariane fulcher and me your host cherry Gregg. flashpoint is sponsored by the gift of life donor program organ donors save lives until next week thanks for listening